Meet Jack Torrance. I'm outlining a new writing project. He's a writer looking for inspiration. Lots of ideas. No good ones. Meet Danny. He's a kid looking for a dad. There's hardly anybody to play with around here. What's up, Doc? Jack just can't finish his book. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but there's no way to make it economically feasible. Here's to five miserable months. But now, sometimes what we need the most is just around the corner. I'm your new foster father. I'd do anything. Climbing up on Salisbury Hill. I love it. I could see the city light. My heart going boom, boom, boom. Son, he said, grab your things, I'm going to take you home. Shiny. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one of Stephen King's works in the chronological order of publication. Today, however, we're going to discuss the 1980 movie adaptation of Stephen King's third novel, Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece, The Shining. The trailer that you just heard was not from the 1980 movie edition, but um, is uh, a recut version you can find on YouTube called Shining, um, in which the footage from the movie is recut to uh, appear to be a feel-good movie. Uh, This is not the trailer for the 1980 Stanley Kubrick Horror Fest, which we will get into today. Now, before we get into it, I just want to illustrate just how important this movie is in the, uh, the pop cultural context of, of our times. Um, it has an 8.5 rating on IMDb, a 92% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and according to Wikipedia, The Shining has become widely regarded as one of the greatest films of the horror genre and a staple of pop culture. Like many Kubrick films, it has been described as seminal. In 2001, the film was ranked 29th on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills list, and Jack Torrance was named the 25th greatest villain on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list in 2003. In 2005, the quote, Here's Johnny, was ranked 68 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes lists. It was named the all-time scariest film by Channel 4. Total Film labeled it the fifth greatest horror film, and Bravo TV named it one of the film's scenes sixth on their list of 100 scariest movie moments. In addition, film critics um, uh, Kim Newman and Jonathan Romney both placed it in their top ten lists for the 2002 Sight and Sound poll. Director Martin Scorsese placed The Shining on his list of the 11 scariest horror films of all time. Even mathematicians at London's King College used statistical modeling in a study commissioned by Sky Movies to conclude that The Shining was the perfect scary movie due to a proper balance of various ingredients, including shock, value, suspense, gore, and size of the cast. Well, there you have it. Math has proven that it's the scariest movie of all time. So I don't know the first time I saw The Shining. Uh, The Shining has just always been there, much like Jack Torrance's presence in The Overlook. All I know is that I've seen it more times than I can remember, and it is no less effective each time I see it. Uh, In fact, every time I watch it, it surprises me just how effective it is as a terrifying and thought-provoking movie. It's something that just sticks with you afterwards. but one, one anecdote that I want to share is a few years ago, um, I, I turned my television on. I didn't have the, the sound receiver on, just the television. And The Shining happened to be on the television station when I turned the TV on. And my dog, who was passed out on the couch next to me, who was just dead asleep, all of a sudden turned to the television just woke up completely, turned to the television, and just started growling. Now, there was no stimuli to wake that dog up. 
there was only visual, and if you know she had her eyes closed and she was asleep, there was there was nothing to wake her up. There was just something about the film that resonated through the ether between what was on the screen and her sleeping thoughts that was enough to, to wake her up. Um, flipped through the, the channels, she calmed down, kind of just rested her head, flipped back to the, uh, the Shining, and she started growling again. So I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't know if, if it means that the film is haunted. I don't know if it means that, uh, you know, sound was still... Um, you know, running through the the wires, and it was still coming out of the speakers at a frequency that that we can't hear. I don't know, but uh, it was definitely something that that stuck with me. And then a few years ago, we we had a, a freak snowstorm uh, in late October, um, and because there were still leaves on all of the the trees, the the weight of the the leaves combined with the snow caused. Um, uh, you know, all of the, the branches to break. It, it caused um, an absurd amount of, of power outages um, in in the area. And when the, the, the power went out in our house, my wife and I, you know, we booted up uh, one of the laptops and put on The Shining. And it was the perfect movie to watch because we were snowed in. We were stuck. It was frightening because we're surrounded by by trees, and all we heard was that the 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 the, the cracks and limbs outside. And the only light that we had was the light from our laptop, uh, showing the 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 shining. So, it's definitely a movie that that has stuck with me. It's a movie that I I genuinely enjoy watching, even though it is terrifying. And uh, I'm just going to get into uh, the notes that I took as I watched it. It, um, you know, rather than just organizing the notes, it was just kind of more of a, a running commentary. So right away, this movie is terrifying. Uh, the camera shot of the lake and the score kicking in uh, suggests a, a creeping madness that's then illustrated by these strange plucks of a string and the, the looping, winding roads that the car drives down. So for all intents and purposes, I got the impression that, that we, the viewer, um, we are voyeuristic predators just sweeping down and hunting our prey. The uh, cinematography is beautiful. The music is strange. Uh, Stanley Kubrick has already established the dreamy, nightmarish tone that's going to just permeate every single frame of this film. And we meet Jack and follow him in a tracking shot that gives us a glimpse of the lobby and begins to create a sense of geography on the inside that's going to be important to the rest of the movie. Um, a sense of geography that um, people with a lot more time on their hands uh, will later spend breaking apart and ultimately uh, stating that the geography itself does not add up. Um, I, I don't know if that's intentional on the part of Kubrick, and I, I don't know if it is just continuity gaps, and I, I tend to think that it's it's continuity gaps because the amount of time that it would take for Stanley Kubrick to plan to the meticulous um, point that, that a lot of people claim that he did, I, I just I don't see that possible, but uh, regardless, the... Um, it is important for us as a viewer to understand where the characters are located and because we're going to be spending the entire movie inside this hotel it's important for us to know that we have a sense of where everything was placed and just little things like just following him following him through the lobby goes a long way in in, in establishing that sense of where everything is located within that hotel and he, he cuts out the tension right away between Jack and Ullman. Um, movie Jack doesn't seethe with anger. Uh, and I've read interviews that describe how Nicholson appears crazy from the beginning. And the criticism being that it takes away from the story if he's already insane. And yeah, I get that. But when I watch it, I, I find him a lot more well-balanced than his novel counterpart. He's patient. He's inquisitive. He's polite. I just wonder if the Jack um, Nicholsonisms uh, have infiltrated our perceptions of the character. And it's also hard to disassociate the image of his classic here's Johnny moment um, from this character. So I guess my question is, are we superimposing what we know, what's going to happen to him um, onto this point of the movie? And how do you untangle the character from the overpowering tone of the film in which all of the characters act 
a little bit off by our, our reality standards. So I, I think there's a couple things in play. Um, I know that Stephen King um, has spoken out uh, uh, about Jack Nicholson's performance, not necessarily as a criticism against the performance, but for the intent um, of the performance by the director. Um, and by being crazy off the bat, it undermines the, the, the destructive nature of the, the, the Overlook Hotel on, on Jack as a character and on the family unit. The almond scene itself is necessary for the amount of exposition needed for us to understand the story's premise. Um, and starting off the movie with an interview is a very smart move. And then we learn about uh, Grady, the previous uh, you know, caretaker of the, the hotel that's going to be very important uh, as we move into the rest of the, the movie. And then we meet Wendy and Danny and Tony. Now, in the book, Danny's haunted um, by these strange prophetic visions and the visitations of a friendly Tony. Um, here, we don't see that. Uh, and from the outside, we see that Danny's representation of Tony is his finger. <laughs> and, and, and Tony speaks to his mother through the, the, the up and down motion of his finger. And just the way that this is seen, uh, uh, filmed, um, it's just so matter-of-fact, and it really unsettled me, um, the scene in the kitchen between the two of them. It's one thing for a mother to encourage, you know, a child's imagination and her child's imaginary friend, but it's another thing to actively ignore what could be and is most likely psychosis. Now, unlike the novel, there's something definitely, definitely strange about this Danny. He speaks to himself in this horrifyingly uh, scrunchy voice. And then um, Tony shows Danny one of the most iconic images in, in, in cinema, and that's that of the blood rushing through the corridors. Um, and there's a quick cut with the two twin girls. I'm getting goosebumps as I'm, as I'm uh, talking about this. And a silently screaming Danny against an abyssal backdrop. We're only 13 minutes into this movie at this point, and it's already more terrifying than the entirety of most modern horror movies. With what we're seeing, it's just, it's images and sensations, and, and, and they don't really add up to much, but they're enough to invoke the, the sensation of, of, of helplessness uh, that goes a long way in establishing the, the threat um, of this movie. Um, but even when it's over, th this particular scene, Kubrick keeps us squirming with Danny, explaining that Tony hides in his mouth and lives in his stomach, uh, which just, um, I think there's a connotation there of violation and sexual abuse, and I don't know if that's um, supported. You know, we will find out that, that Jack has abused Danny physically, but when when he says something like that, I, I think that if anyone wants to make the argument that there is sexual abuse, I think that it's it's hinted at with that particular line. Or it's just something strange for a child to say, which, which you know, helps with the, the creepiness of, of the movie. Um, regardless, unlike the book, Tony, this invisible character, has very sinister overtones. Um, or at least the question of Tony's motivations um, are raised um, in the viewer's eyes. So, but the thing is that gets me is after this, um, after Danny apparently had a screaming fit and passed out, that's the only thing that I can imagine, and the doctor is called, and then Danny explains that there is a, a, another being that is living in his mouth and hiding in his stomach, the doctor says, oh yeah, that's fine. The world's worst doctor gives Danny the green light. Um, and then we, we uh, you know, there's a, a couple other scenes, but what I want to note is that um, when we see Jack again with the family, uh, the Jack that drives the family to the Overlook is a different Jack from the beginning of the movie. Because the Jack that we saw at the beginning of the movie in Almond's office, like I said, was pretty well composed and, you know, inquisitive and, you know, charismatic. Um, but this one is different. And so maybe this is what Stephen King was talking about when he said that um, he didn't like the representation of, of Jack by Jack Nicholson um, as being crazy right from the get-go. And if this is what he's talking about, I then I completely understand because he's distracted here. 
as he's driving. He looks possessed. Um, he's distant. He's annoyed at his family. Um, but I wouldn't say that uh, he's crazy. I would say that when we first see him walk into the Overlook, he's fine. And the next time we see him, he's not fine. So that, to me, suggests that his short time in the hotel has already altered him as a person. And then when they get to the Overlook, uh, Allman takes them on a tour of the hotel, giving some background on the hotel while Dan while Danny throws darts. Because if there's one kid that should be left alone with pointy things, it's definitely Danny. Um, but it's in that scene when Danny's alone. Um, oh my God, we see the twins, and there is no reason why two little girls should be frightening, but they are nightmaringly inducing. So it is freakish the way that they are presented and and the freakishness is 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 really set in that just uh they're just there they're just standing there and there's they're just that's it i mean they're they're not they're not running at you they don't have pointy teeth um they don't have claws they they don't even have they don't have weapons it's just two little girls standing there and that is is just you don't need special effects for that you just need an ability to film a scene it's awesome Ullman, uh, meanwhile, offhandedly makes a comment of the hotel being built on an Indian burial ground, uh, which is always good. And then we meet Dick Holleran, played with the charismatic charm of Scatman Carruthers. Um, the tone is unrelenting. I'm telling you, it, it just doesn't stop. Um, so while Dick drones on and on, it focuses on Danny. Um, and then Dick eventually turns to the boy who all of a sudden can hear his thoughts. Um... You know, and, and then, you know, they he, he tells them all about The Shining, and it's a good scene. And then, you know, there's the warning about, you know, don't go anywhere near room 237. Uh, later on, there's a scene with uh, Shelley Duvall in which she brings breakfast to their apartment. And I notice that her robe matches the hallway decor perfectly. And I, I'm just wondering if what, what Kubrick is trying to say there, whether or not that she is, as all of the critics will point out, you know, just like a wallflower, not much of a character herself. Um, and I just couldn't help but think during that scene that one day, one day, I hope that I can just eat eggs um, as crazily as Jack Nicholson can, because that takes talent. But he winds up burning off those calories uh, with a solo game of wall ball that I can't imagine that Ullman would be very happy to, to know about. Um, but what's interesting about that is the, the wall ball scene where he's just tossing the tennis ball. Boom, boom, boom. It's offset um, with a scene of, of Danny and Wendy walking around in the maze. And just the, the coupling of this, um, to me, uh, highlights Jack's growing isolation. And speaking of Danny, um, when he eventually stops in front of room 237, uh, Stanley Kubrick perfectly captures the allure of the forbidden. Danny Quant can't quite put a finger on the reasons why he doesn't like what's inside, only that he's been warned of it, first by Tony and then by Doc. Again, we see a glimpse of the girls, and again, how can Kubrick make two little girls so terrifying? I don't for a second believe that Jack and Wendy are married. Uh, even before he started going insane, I can't see the two of them together, partially because she, she is such a non-character whose only trait is to be nice or terrified. Um... So there's the, the scene where he's just really laying into her, and she stands there, and she nods her head, and, and she goes away. I mean, she just, I, I get on one hand that she's trying to put on a brave face to just tell herself that everything's okay, but um, but but this is, this is a bit much, uh, because Jack has just begun to lose it, um, becoming verbally aggressive and abusive to her. And then his isolation continues, his insanity deepens, um, and we see... Um, what his insanity is beginning to look like as Kubrick pans in on him and, and reveals a slack-jawed, dead-eyed Nicholson staring just off camera while his wife and daughter play in the increasingly deepening snow, you know, thereby establishing just how isolated they are from the rest of society and how isolated he is within the, the, the group of the three of them. And then, when Danny finally comes face-to-face -face with the girls, I mean, it's, it's good. I mean, he does a that Kubrick, he, Kubrick, does a, a really good job at, at creating a sense of vulnerability. Um, 
you know, because we, we had seen Danny rolling around um, on, on his bike. Uh, we don't know how far in the hospital or fa- how far away he is from, from his mother, but um, when he's confronted, I, I felt scared for him. And then Kubrick intercuts the scene with images of their bloodied bodies, and each time we see them, as they invite him to play with them, Kubrick gets closer and closer to them with the camera, hinting that the the threat um, is getting closer. And then on the next scene, uh, Danny and Jack bond in the most threatening father-son moment ever captured on screen, and I'm including The Empire Strikes Back in that list. It's clear that Jack is about to snap at any minute, staring at him with his shark-like smile and manic wild eyes while the score spins and swirls around them like music from a snow globe in which they are trapped together. And uh, so, you know, and basically the, the movie continues and, and we see Jack going more and more insane, but there's an important scene, um, and it's the nightmare scene where Jack is having a nightmare. There's just something about watching other people be afraid of things and other people having nightmares. Um, I, on a side note, I, I, there, there's two kinds of horror movie fans out there, those that that think that the Blair Witch Project is terrifying and those that think it's boring. Um, and for me, I thought it was terrifying because just watching people be afraid of things uh, scares me to death because it, to, it, it's more unknown. You recognize terror, certainly, but the, the object of the terror is not, is not something that you see, and that's where the Blair Witch um, you know, excelled. Um, and I'm going to talk about David Lynch later on, but there's that's something that he does very well too he just he will have these close uh, shots of, of of characters all of a sudden just have a, a a terrified reaction to something that that we don't see or understand and there you know we want to help someone but they just look racked by such a fear that just seems otherworldly um that that we can't help them through and that's what happens here when Jack is having a nightmare. Um, so Wendy races from the bowels of the hotel to rescue him. Um, and he comes to, he comes to in a moment of clarity, um, having dreamt he had just murdered his family. And he admits to losing his mind, or rather he admits to the, the fear of, of losing his mind. But that, that's the, for me, it's the last glimpse of Jack, the, the man he was before he ever stepped foot into the Overlook Hotel. And then his face is just contorting and twisting, and his mind and, and his soul are being pulled apart by the various forces in the hotel. Um, I, I believe it's the last time we see the real Jack Torrance, because from that point forward, he is the mayor of Crazy Town. Because the next time we see him, he literally sells his soul for a glass of beer and gives us the laugh that basically serves as the audition tape for the Joker in 1989's Batman. Just the thought of thinking that someone else is in the hotel and has been in the hotel with you and your family is terrifying and that's what happens when Wendy uh, goes to Jack um, after she's listened to Danny and Danny explains how there was the woman in room 237 um, that's terrifying there's no one else around um, you know and it could have been no I was about to say it could have been an idyllic um, getaway but no I mean everything about this screams uh, horror something bad is going to happen but just the idea that that someone else is there with you, it just, it violates your privacy and your safety. It's, it's just, it's a terrifying concept. You don't have to do anything with it. You just have to say, I think that someone else is here and that's enough to just um, keep you up at night. Um, and as terrifying as it is, I, Stanley Kubrick does a great job here because he, he wants to add just a little bit of humor because there is a little bit of humor there's not much but there's just a little bit and all you have to do is just look at dick holleran's room um you know poor dick you know he's just in lot he's just enjoying uh relaxing on his bed you know in his perfectly symmetrical room with his pictures on the wall and all of a sudden he's barraged with a psychic attack from colorado and this is a great scene um a heartbeat fills the speakers and the question is whose heartbeat is it is it Dick's? Is it Danny's? Is it Jack's? Is it the Overlook's? 
and Danny is just shivering. You just see him, and he's he, like, I don't know if it's it's if it's Danny projecting, if it's Dick having a vision, but Danny's just there. He's shivering, and on his mouth, what is it? Is it foam? Is it spit? Is it vomit? I don't know what it is, but it's enough to disturb me. Um, and then Jack enters room two thirty-seven, and he's approached by a beautiful naked woman, and the scene is filmed as if it's a dream. And despite the naked woman, it's not necessarily a pleasant one. There's just something off about it. From the slowed motion of the actors to the simple fact that he doesn't seem bothered by the presence of another person in the hotel. And the entire time he's like he's under some kind of trance. There's a hypnotic heartbeat over the soundtrack. And it just screams to us, the viewer, that everything that's happening right now is wrong. The dread grows and grows while Jack leans in for a kiss, moving his head back and forth while he's kissing her, and she's not moving at all. Okay, and then we get a really sen- bad sensation that something bad is happening here. And then we get images of the waterlogged hag lurching towards him while simultaneously rising out of the bathtub, further cementing the dreamlike quality of multiple incompatible things happening all at once. How can she be rising from the bathtub while she stalks after Jack? She can't, and that's what's horrifying. It tells us that we aren't functioning in our reality anymore. The only logic that we can trust is dream logic, which tells us that we have no control over the events that occur within this hotel. And then Danny has his next vision, where we first see Red Rum scrawled on the door. And it cuts back to him, mouth wide open in a soundless scream, like a nightmare where you just can't make a sound. Jack goes and he encounters Grady. And it's important to note that Grady has been the Overlook's caretaker beforehand. And then now, Grady is a butler in service to the Overlook, foreshadowing Jack's future and suggested past, with the hotel. This tells us that upon death, he will not be one of the many guest ghosts in the ballroom, but will instead be forced into eternal servitude. During the bathroom scene with Grady, the scary dream logic rears its ugly head again when Grady says the following things. You've been the caretaker, you've always been the caretaker, and I should know, I've always been here. So the question is, and this is a question that has been debated back and forth since the movie first came out in 1980, but what are we supposed to discern from this? And we have to keep in mind that the final image of the movie, which is um, the picture of, of, of Jack um, with all the other ball, ballroom guests at the Overlook, but what are we supposed to discern here? That once Jack physically dies in the end of the movie, his spirit is absorbed in the hotel's history, which exists in its own time? Does it mean that he's the caretaker, and it doesn't matter if he, if the if the caretaker is Grady, Jack, or someone else entirely? It's the caretaker that's always been um, the caretaker, and Grady, now being a part of the Overlook, is speaking as the Overlook, meaning that he's always been there. So Jack is the caretaker. The caretaker's always been the caretaker, and the Overlook is talking to him. So I I, I don't know. I don't have an answer, and part of me doesn't even kind of want to explore it because I just. I accept that it's creepy because there's just something off about it and there's something that doesn't make sense. And by trying to unravel it, um, y- yeah, you go a little bit insane, I think, and it, it, it reinforces, you know, everything that's happening in the book and it kind of makes, or I'm sorry, the movie rather, and it makes the movie come to life inside your own life. But is that something that you really want to happen? Do you really want to go insane? Do you really want to spend too much time thinking about this? Lord knows um, that a lot of people have. I mean, it, it, it spawned its own documentary, uh, room th- uh, 237. Um, and I really don't want to fall down that rabbit hole myself. But the gang over at uh, Castle of Horror um, do a really good job reviewing this movie, and, and they raise this question. They have a, a really good conversation about what the ending means and, and in the context of this particular scene, you know, and, and one of them, one of the, 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 the podcasters, um, you know, does discuss uh, the, the Overlook's own kind of like timeline, its own time stream. It's, it, it exists in its own reality. And, and that makes sense to me. So if you're in the mood for even more uh, analysis of, of the movie, um, then you can definitely check out their review um, if you look up uh, Castle of Horror podcast. And like I said, uh, those guys do a really, really good job. 
And then, uh, then we start to uh, head towards the end of the, the movie, uh, and, and, and Danny starts saying red rum. Now, I can't imagine having a child and hearing him in a trance just shout red rum from a darkened room like that. But it's not even Danny. It's Tony. And Tony is as terrifying as the ghosts inside this hotel. He's more alien a presence than they are, and the fact that he hides in a little boy's mouth is violating and discomforting. And then the Red Room reveal happens, and it's terrifying. And look, I know that I've said that this movie is terrifying and horrifying, but good God, this movie is so thoroughly sinister. What's interesting is that when we first see Danny with the knife as he chants Red Rum, I can't help but feel that Wendy's in danger, right? Because her, her boy looks possessed, and he's holding a knife, and he's chanting Red Rum. But as the scene progresses... It's clear that Danny has equipped her with a weapon that she's going to then use in order to beat back Jack, and it's the only thing that saves her life. So that's just an interesting reversal. And Hollerin uh, shows up and then dies immediately. Uh, he's a useless character, and the entire time, now that I watch this movie, the only person I can think of is Groundskeeper Willie from the Simpsons uh, Treehouse of Terror episode. But he's a useless character in this movie, existing only to give information about The Shining, and then to deliver a snowcat that Wendy and Danny will use to escape. And so then Jack goes in pursuit of, of Danny. Wendy moves throughout the hotel. The ghosts come out to play. Um, and then Danny shows uh, a lot of sense um, and covers up his tracks. Uh, Jack gets lost in the maze and freezes to death. Um, then Wendy and Danny take the snowcat um, back to civilization. Then, of course, there's the, the famous zoom in of the... Uh, the, the picture, the framed picture, which shows that, that Jack has been there, um, you know, for, for a long, long time. So the big question is, what exactly does that mean? And I really don't have an answer. Um, but I just, my final thoughts on this movie is that this movie is awesome. I mean, this is a, a great movie, and that's why I wanted to start the podcast, you know, really discussing... Um, you know, all of the accomplishments of it uh, and why it's so critically regarded uh, across the board. It's, it's like I said, it's, it's sinister. It, there's something about it that is just palpable. It's enough to, to wake my dog up even though there's no sound. And the movie's a classic um, filled with so much iconic imagery. Uh, you know, when I reviewed Carrie, uh, you know, I discussed um, the, the movie edition of, of Carrie, the, the 76 De Palma version. Uh, you know, I mean, they're all going to laugh at you, dirty pillows, uh, just the image of Carrie at the prom. These are all iconic um, images, and The Shining takes that um, and gives us, I, I think, Stephen King's most iconic um, lines. Here's Johnny, and just the image of Jack Nicholson framed in that broken doorway. Um, you know, Danny uttering red rum. Um, you know, th these are... These are things that have influenced our culture, have been interwoven into all, all culture. I, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. You know, I mean, Wendy, uh, you know, and he gives the speech, you know, I, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. You know, the, the, and then this movie made Jack Nicholson be Jack Nicholson. You know, I mean, he had been an actor. He had given us One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest before. But this movie... Um, really, really made him the, 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 it gave him that crazy aspect that I think that we all associate with Jack Nicholson. You know, the Jack Nicholson that, um, you know, attacks people in their cars with, with, uh, golf clubs and just sits in the front row of the Oscars with his sunglasses and his eyebrows above his sunglasses with that, that smile on his face the entire time. You know, he is a legend, and if it wasn't for this movie, he wouldn't be a legend. And like I said, this performance seals the deal for his role as the Joker nine years later for, um, for Tim Burton's Batman. So now it's time to, to just go through each of the components of the movie, and I'm going to compare them to the book, and we're going to see... Uh, who the winner is, the, the book or the movie in the age-old debate, because I think this adaptation, more than any other adaptation by Stephen King, um, generates the most argument um, with, with Stephen um, King fans 
saying that the book is better and the, um, the Stanley Kubrick fans saying that the the movie is better. Now, as someone that is a fan of both, I'm going to tell you my opinion in a minute, but I'm going to break it down first and foremost, character by character and aspect by aspect. So we're going to start with our main character, Jack. So I'm going to go with the book on this one. Um, but no, no, I'm not. I'm sorry. I take that back. This sucker's a tie because, like I just said, um, Jack Nicholson's performance is iconic and it made him. And if it wasn't for Jack Nicholson, uh, this movie wouldn't be as effective as it is because, yes, um, he might be crazier in the beginning than Jack in the novel was, but that craziness is necessary for the movie. And it, it, it's just so... It, it comes off of the screen in a way. The insanity is... I feel the insanity. I feel insane by watching his insanity. Um, and, and that's a testament to, to his ability as an actor. Um, and it's a testament to Kubrick's ability to, to get it out of the actor and film it on screen. Now, Jack in the book... Um, the way that King writes him as someone that does love his family but is gripped with um, a lot of faults with his, um, you know, uh, cycle of abuse story and the alcoholism and the rage and the, the, the questioning of uh, the importance of his life and the, the crisis that he's going through. Uh, there's a lot to that character. He's not always the most likable character, but ultimately he does... Um, not necessarily redeem himself at the end, but he does uh, give his family a chance to escape while he takes down the evil all around him. Um, so that's... It, we have two completely different portrayals of this character, and both work so well for the respective story that the storytellers are trying to tell. I mean, Stephen King was telling one story, and Stanley Kubrick was telling another story with a basic premise. Um, and the, those premise... Each premise just goes in a completely different direction. And Stephen King's uh, takes the premise, and he focuses on the characters, while Stanley Kubrick takes the premise, and he focuses on on invoking this this sensation within the um, within the viewer of the film, and and exploring insanity and concepts, and putting the characters uh, through the ringer. So, two completely different ways of going about it. Um, and it's just, it's so fascinating because more than any other adaptation, I, 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 I don't recall if there ever, there really being as much debate over which is better. And, you know, those that claim that the book is better have perfectly valid reasons. And those that claim that the, the movie is better have perfectly valid reasons. But in this case, I really can't make a distinction between what is better, the, uh, the movie version of Jack or the book version of Jack, because each one functions perfectly for the story that is being told by that particular storyteller. Which brings us to Wendy, and there is a clear winner here, and that winner is not Shelley Duvall. Um, the, the winner, it hands down, the book. Good God, the book. It's not even close. Um, look, I don't know if it's Shelley Duvall's part, uh, fault or if it's Stanley Kubrick's fault, but the movie Wendy might be one of the weakest, thinnest characters ever committed to screen and I completely understand any frustration that Stephen King might have had with the representation of this character so rather than exploring a woman torn between what's best for her husband and what's best for her son Duvall portrays a woman who is just blissfully ignorant of the growing madness in both Jack and Danny the entire movie all she does is cry shake scream and ineffectively swing baseball bats noise that you might have just heard in the background that's that's uh that's my dog that i had just mentioned earlier um making her first appearance on the stephen king cast uh, snoring uh in the background now she's looking at me and she's upset because i just woke her up but uh don't worry constant reader i have no doubt that she will fall back asleep as it is her superpower so don't be surprised if you hear her snoring in the background in a few minutes up next in the, the battle between book and movie, we have Danny. And much like his father, I have to go tie because the character functions uh, very differently in both the movie and the book. But I have to go with Ty because um, the, the, the Danny in the book functions perfectly for the book and the Danny in the movie functions perfectly in the, Dan uh, in the, in the movie. Um, 
the the movie version there's just something off about the poor kid he just seems like possessed by something that that he can't understand it's not just the shining uh it, it's not just a kid with a power not, not the way that it was with um with Carrie or how it's going to be with Charlie and, and Firestarter. There's just, I mean, just the fact that he, he wiggles his finger and he talks in that voice. Um, he's a creepy kid. He's not creepy, but the, 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 the depiction of the character is creepy. There she goes again. She's snoring in the background. Um, but, uh, but Danny in the book, um, he seems kind of caught in a, more in, um, like a, a storm that he he can't control um both characters are great and like i said both characters um function perfectly within each of the narratives of their respective mediums and i can't i can't make a differentiation um and give a, a, a trophy to, to either one of them so this one's a tie so we have two ties so far and one clear winner which brings us to um to dick to dick hollerin um and there we have another uh, clear winner with Dick, and that is hands down the book, uh, because in the book, um, you know he he functions more as a character, as a presence. Uh, you know he interacts more with uh, the family, and then by entering the Overlook Hotel at the end, he's almost a substitute for us being able to inject a little bit of um, of uh, like kind of like a a safety net or a life preserver we're just trying to help that family and and he comes in and 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 by coming in he's almost like this avenging angel just trying to help out and um you know just him being able to do that uh, you know goes a long way whereas in the movie you know he just he shows up and the poor guy immediately you know just gets axed in the chest and it's important and i understand why why stanley kubrick does it is because uh, you know by by killing you know dick it it shows that that jack nicholson has has reached a threshold and crossed that threshold across which he, he's never going to be able to come back he is he's crossed the line um you know, he's already sold his soul for a glass but now it, it's it's clear that, th that he's damned he's not who he is anymore and this is the first person that's had to pay um for for that for, for the cost of the, the the soul being sold so Wendy sees him dead and she knows the severity of the situation now she she you know I think that up until now she could make excuses and she's good at making excuses and nodding her head and smiling and, and just ignoring actively everything that that's horribly wrong around her but with the, the, the corpse of Dick Holleran on the ground she can't make those excuses anymore she just she has to acknowledge that that something horribly is wrong you know we acknowledge that something you know horribly is wrong and there is no coming back for for Jack this is it I mean the, the, we're on a collision course here um, so I get it but the, the, the Dick Holleran in the book has a little bit more characterization. Um, and we see him again. Um, this is not the only time we see him. Uh, you know, we will see him in flashbacks in Doctor Sleep. And we will see him in a flashback in Stephen King's It as well. Um, and all of these kind of go, um, you know, add to this character. They, they just texture him and shape him a little bit more and maybe maybe it's unfair because it's uh two other novels that are contributing to uh his victory here but i don't care i'm gonna go with it uh dick the book wins over dick the movie and then we have the ghosts um we, we don't really see too many ghosts in the movie um you know we we see lloyd the bartender who might just be the devil uh, or just uh, one of the representations of the Overlook. We have Grady, um, Charles Grady slash Delbert Grady, um, who's super creepy, by the way, with just his his voice um, and how ex unexpressionless he is. Um, and, of course, we have the bear um, in the bedroom scene and all the skeletons in the ballroom. But uh, And, of course, uh, the girls, the girls. So, I mean, we have those, but, um, oh, and the hag. So we, we have quite a few ghosts um, in the movie. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to go with the ghosts in the book because Stephen King is one thing that, one of the Stephen King Stephen Kingisms is that he's able to make charismatic villains and the ghosts um, really seem like a threat. Um, whereas in the, the, the movie, it's almost as if um, Stanley Kubrick doesn't even need the ghosts the 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 way in which he uses the score and films the scenes and uh 
just will pan in on the characters and, and just follow Danny around in these track shots as he's uh, riding his bike. That in of itself is enough. We don't need the ghosts. The ghosts are the frosting on the cake, but the, the cake itself is just rich with, with dread. Um, whereas the ghosts themselves take up a, a much larger presence in the novel. So I'm going to go with the book on this one. The, the, the book wins out in terms of the ghosts. But um, the, the house in which the, the, the ghosts haunt has to go to the movie. I think that the overlook in the movie, uh, there's just something evil about the place. And uh, from the, the elevator doors with the blood gushing out to the, the, the Native American motif to the, um, the geography that sometimes doesn't add up, whether or not it's a, uh, a continuity gap or if it's you know because there was the exterior locations and then the interior locations both filmed in different places um, and just how isolated they seem in, in they so small in these such large rooms and um, sometimes the, the, the rooms themselves look very small and, and just the colors, they, they just pop and they, you know, from the, the, the green bathroom in 237 to the, the, um, the red bathroom where Jack talks to Grady or the red hallway that, um, Wendy walks down with the, the butcher knife towards the end of the movie or the, um, the blue ballroom with all the skeletons, um, or just the, uh, just the maze outside, uh, and, and how haunting that looks, especially when, when Jack is looking down at the, 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 the model of the maze and he sees, I don't even know if he sees, but we see the, the little figures of his wife and son making their way through the maze as the score um, swirls around. And I know that I'm adding in you know movie touches, but it's definitely a part. It's sometimes hard to um, you know take apart those aspects when you have a movie because everything works uh together when it's effective and certainly this movie is effective but i have to go to the overlook um the movie in this and then uh so those are the, the things that we see similar in in both editions the the book and the movie and then of course we have some pretty striking differences the first of which being in the book we get um, a scene in which we have these hedge animals that are moving around. And then in the, the movie, um, the hedge animals are replaced with the maze in which Danny is able to outsmart his father, thereby causing his father to, to die um, by freezing to death. Um, and, and I know that, that, that fans have raged, you know, this debate, you know, which one works. And for me, it's the maze, um, for a couple of reasons. The, the idea of, oh, it's, it's scaring me right now. Just the idea of being chased through a maze, um, with the axe wielding possessed father, um, is terrifying. You don't know where your mother is. It's cold outside. You don't know exactly where you're going. Or maybe you do know exactly where you're going because Danny had been in the maze before. We don't know how many times he's been in the maze. We don't know if Tony is, is helping to guide him through the maze. Um, but regardless, the, the idea that uh, you are in um, the labyrinth and the Minotaur is coming after you is, is an age-old story. And it's realized here in this movie. Um, and also with the maze, we're able to get Danny be a lot more proactive when he does indeed um, start to step backwards into his own footprints, which, by the way, is in, is such a tense scene because we know that Jack is moving forward and then Danny starts very slowly moving backward. Um, and he's hiding behind the next hedge and Jack is so close and he doesn't even realize it and he's screaming for Danny and it's just, it's so tense. Um, and you don't need special effects all you need is a camera and good actors um, and, and an ability to know how to film the scene um, and, and create the tone that, that you intend. Um, whereas in the book, you do need some sort of special effects. And to me, m moving hedges, uh, animal hedges, it does not scare me. I, 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 it just, it does not, it does not creep me out. And, uh, I had no issue when Stanley Kubrick cut it out of the, the, the book or the, the movie. And I just, I, for evidence, just look at the, the 1997, I think it was 97, um, 
Stephen Weber TV movie edition with the the moving hedges. It's 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 laughable, in a scene that should be terrifying. Um, it's just unneeded, you know. I mean, it kind of works in the book, um, but it it doesn't it doesn't work. It wouldn't work on screen, and so I I, I have to go with the maze because. Um, it, it's questionable whether or not it works in the book, in my opinion, but I know for a fact that it works on the screen. So that, that one wins, the maze. Which brings us up to our next difference, the mallet or the axe. Which one works? Um, and to me, it's the axe because uh, a, a grotesque, um, like, mutated mallet, uh, to me, is not as frightening as an axe. It's an axe. Um so uh, that to me works, um, which is funny because there's going to be an adaptation coming up um, in which Stephen King uses an axe rather than a mallet in the book. And the um, filmmaker, uh, Rob Reiner, uh, uses a mallet instead of an axe. And I believe that the mallet uh, works better in that scene. And of course, that is misery. Um, but here... Um, I, I have to go with the axe because it gives us one of the most iconic scenes in, in movie history. Um, the, it's the here's Johnny scene. And just, I mean, who doesn't, no one wants to be chopped up with an axe. Um, and I feel as though the, the second you are touched with that axe blade, you're done for. Whereas I, I think that if you, if you got hit in the arm with a mallet, you can still come back from that. There's a, there's a chance of, of, of beating back your attacker. There's, there's more safety with a mallet. There is no safety with an axe. Um, so the threat level is much higher with the axe. So I have to go with Kubrick and the film for that. And then the ending. In the book, one of our Stephen Kingisms for three movies in a, or three books in a row now, it ends in fire. The Overlook explodes. And here, the Overlook does not explode. The Overlook remains intact. Um, our characters survive, the Overlook survives, Jack perishes, and the soul of Jack is incorporated into the history of the Overlook. Um, the ending of the movie is much more haunting, and I have to go with the, uh, the movie. Um, of course, Stephen King gives the, the characters a much more uplifting end in the, um, in the book, and that's fine, and I'm glad for the characters. Um, but I, I do need to go with the, the, the movie here because the idea that the evil endures um, and the overlook still remains for this to happen to someone else, it's, it's, a, it's a haunting concept. And I'm glad that it's out there. So here we go. Here's the big question. Which is it? The book or the movie? Which one is better? Looking at my calculations here, going down the list, um, giving a point here to the book, giving a point here to the movie, it's five to five. Because um, I, I had given both Jack and Danny uh, points for um, the representations in each of, uh, of their respective stories. So it is five to five. So what's it going to be? I know you're on the edge of your seats, but I'm going to go with the movie. Um I just think that this is a classic movie. It's one of the greatest movies of all time. Whereas I think that the book is good, um, but I wouldn't say it's one of the greatest books of all time. I, I think that the 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 movie um, means more um, for our um, storytelling uh, culture um, than the book does. And of course, the book was the the source and the inspiration. But I think that what Stanley Kubrick was able to do is more potent than what Stephen King was able to do. Um, and it also, um, to me, is uh, helps answer a misconception that I that I believe exists out there. And that's um, the idea that the book is always better. And that's not the case. I think that, yeah, most of the time the book is better. But um, nothing against Peter Benchley. But uh, if anyone has ever read Jaws, uh, it's it's clear that the the movie is is definitely better than Jaws because Steven Spielberg um, and screenwriters they they just looked at the the story and, and basically just made the determination that the movie that they wanted to make was a story about man versus nature represented by a shark. You don't need the mafia, and you don't need a love affair between Hooper and Chief's wife. All you need is man versus nature and similarly going back to spielberg again um if you make the argument that jurassic park is a better movie than 
the novel, um, I won't argue with you, although I do love the, the, the novel, and reading the, the book was one of the best reading experiences I've ever had of my life. But I, I get the reasons why Steven Spielberg filmed it the way that he did um, by focusing on the, the idea that uh, basically he just looked at it and said, okay, I want to focus on the wonder and magic of seeing a dinosaur walk the earth, and I don't need all this science stuff. So I, I believe that when you when a filmmaker takes something that has been in another medium already, and in this case books, I think that's important for that filmmaker to make the necessary changes in order for the the book to stand or the the the, the concept to stand on its own in a different medium. Because what works in a book does not necessarily work in a movie. I I don't like the Harry Potter movies because I feel as though they're just recreations of what happened on the page and the the experience of reading is so much different from the experience of, of watching television and do you want things to play out just as they did in a book? It won't necessarily create the same effect as it did while you were reading it because the writer writes in such a way to invoke certain feelings and connotations um, and create uh, you know uh, tension or, or what what have you and the way in which the author does it will need to be different because the author is working in a completely different medium than the 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 filmmaker and so the filmmaker will need to do whatever he or she needs to do in order to create um, the same sensations that you felt while reading, but in a completely different way. So I like the fact that Stanley Kubrick looked at the concept and said, okay, I'm going to make a terrifying movie. Stephen King made a terrifying book, and Stephen King is a master at the written word, and I'm going to make a terrifying movie because I'm a master at making films. And he understands that, or understood, that in order to do so, he was going to need to make changes. And he focused not on the characters so much as impenetrable dread um, that just saturated every frame of the film. So I, Stephen King um, very famously uh, was very uh, vocal about his dislike of, of Kubrick's adaptation of his, of his book. Um, and he has every reason to feel how he feels. All I know is that I, I have a strong reaction to the movie, and I think that the movie's place in our culture um, has a lot more weight than the book's um, place in our culture, although both are, are strong examples of um, horror stories within their uh, particular genres. I just think that the, the movie has had more of an impact than the book, although the book did come first. Um, but here is what he had to say in an interview with uh, the BBC. Um, and, and, and it really captures perfectly what uh, how Kubrick and King both approach a very similar premise um, so differently. So he says, It's cold, and I'm not a cold guy. I think one of the things people relate to in my books is this warmth. There's a reaching out and saying to the reader, I want you to be a part of this. With Kubrick's The Shining, I felt that it was very, very, very cold. Very, we're looking at these people, but they're like ants in an anthill. Aren't they doing interesting things, these little insects? Um, furthermore, he goes on to explain that uh, Jack Torrance in the movie seems crazy from the jump. Jack Nicholson, I'd seen all his biker pictures in the 50s and 60s, and I thought, he's just channeling the wild angels here. Um... And I, I don't necessarily agree with that, uh, but I do agree with, with this. Shelley Duvall as Wendy is really one of the most misogynistic characters ever put on film. She's basically just there to scream and to be stupid, and that's not the woman that I wrote about. Um, and I'm glad that he says that because, first of all, the, the representation of that character on screen is, um, is very insulting. And the, the second thing here is that it, it, it shows King's passion to write strong women. And I know that in my review of the, the book Carrie, I was very critical of the character of Sue Snell, not necessarily because she was a weak um, representation, but I still have not made up my mind whether or not she's an unreliable narrator. Um, and if she is a reliable narrator, whether or not she her actions cause everything that happened. Um, and I was very critical of um, Susan Norton in Salem's Lot, who is just 
either a, a, a very weak character or um, a character that is intentionally written to be younger than she thinks that she is. Um, but with Wendy, um, we're starting to get the beginning of the strong female characters that, that Stephen King will, will, will go on to write. Um, Wendy is very protective of Danny. Um, she has a, a streak in her that, that wants to remain loyal because it's the right thing to do and because she honestly does love her husband. Part of it is out of necessity because of, um, you know, where else is she going to go? But she wants to stick it out. Um, and Shelley Duvall is just not able to bring any of that. She just whimpers and cries and smiles and ignores and uh, just, and I agree. I agree with Stephen King on that. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it's just a matter of um, subjective taste. And for me, it, it's the book. Um, you know, I mean, I, I have some friends that are very avid Stephen King readers, and one friend in particular, you know, we, we just argued at, at length about um, book versus movie. And I just, I'm going to go with the, the, the movie on this one. Um, you know, I'm going to go with the book most of the time. But uh, in this case, I have to go with uh, the late Stanley Kubrick and the classic 1980 uh, movie, The Shining. So if you like this movie and you want to see more like it, uh, there definitely are some recommendations that I can give to you. First of all, anything by David Lynch. Um, what Stanley Kubrick does here, he, he creates um, a sense of vulnerability and being out of control by forces that we can't quite understand. And it just the physics seem wrong, and everything seems underwater. And basically, you know, I use the word, uh, the phrase, dream logic, um, and that applies to everything that David Lynch does. So what Stanley Kubrick does here, um, I think Stanley Kubrick is trying to do, whereas David Lynch just does it because that's how David Lynch thinks. Um, whether it's Twin Peaks, whether it's Mulholland Drive, or Lost Highway, or Racerhead, the people in his films. Um, are victims of living in a warped dream world, having to function in a reality whose logic is that of dreams and nightmares. Um, he is able to uh, just record a static object and give that object so much um, sinister intent and, and malice um, and make you so uncomfortable, whether it be a, um, uh, a ceiling fan or a, a, a stare, um, or, um, you know, there's a scene in Mulholland Drive that's so effective where a man is sitting in a diner. I, I just got goosebumps. Whew. A man is sitting in a diner explaining a dream that he had. Um, and I'm not going to go into too much detail because I don't want to ruin it, but he goes into detail, and the actor sells it so well about being in that exact diner sitting in that exact seat, having this exact conversation. And there's a man behind the diner, and he doesn't want to go behind the diner. And the psychiatrist convinces him that he needs to go behind the diner to see the man, and there's something wrong with the man's face. It is so terrifying, and it shouldn't be. And nothing about that scene makes sense, because nothing about that scene... Um, would ever happen in real life, but it, it's it, just because it couldn't happen in real life. I hope it could never happen in real life because if it's happening in real life, then our reality is a lot stranger than, than I thought it was. But um, it's so effective, and that's the kind of horror that, that David Lynch trades in. So if you like The Shining, I guarantee you that you will like the works of David Lynch. Um, I would also, uh, you know, encourage you to to go see a um, uh, a movie that is not really talked about that much, and that's The Sentinel, um, a movie that came out either in the late seventies or the early eighties um, about a um, a an apartment complex that happens to be a gateway to hell, and the, the the person that's there to 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 guard its gates. But there are there's some creepy stuff that occurs in that movie, and the most terrifying thing. Honestly, I'm describing it, it's not scary at all. It's one person walking from one corner of the room to the next. But if you see it on screen and don't jump out of your seat and it doesn't scare you, um, then, then you've got a backbone of steel. Um, the, the, the Amityville Horror, the, uh, um, the, the 70s, or it might have been early 80s. I think it was the 70s, right? The Amityville Horror with, uh, with James Brolin and... Um, was it Margot Kidder? Yeah, it was Margot Kidder. Yeah, the, the two of them, um, 
oh my god same thing i mean there's you can't control it you can't control the things that that are occurring um i i remember the the music at times being very similar um to to the shining i could be wrong but when i think of uh the shining i i kind of think of the amityville horror and when i think of the amityville horror i think of the conjuring which just came out a couple years ago which was a haunted house movie um which was just very effective it was um a different kind of scare and i saw that one in the theaters and that was one of the most fun i've I've had in a movie theater because the, the the crowd was just so amped up based on the feel of fear that they had um, so it's just one of those uh, movie experiences where um, you know someone would jump, or there would be a scare, and there would be this nervous titter all throughout the uh, the movie theater. Um, so you know those are the movies uh, that that you can go see, and and the television show, and in the case of Twin Peaks, if you want to go see that by by David Lynch, if you like The Shining, and of course if you like The Shining. And if my analysis was not enough and the analysis of the, the podcasters over at, at Castle of Horror, um, formerly Castle of Dracula, aren't enough, then um, then there's a documentary out there for you that you can go check out right now. And that's Room 237 based on the, the, the haunted room in, in The Shining movie. And there are many people out there that have poured over every single frame of this movie and have imbued every single frame with so much meaning and uh, compared and contrasted it to every other uh, work by Stanley Kubrick and you watch this and uh, you're, you're going to get theories on the Holocaust and the, um, you know, the, the, the white man's uh, uh, conquering of uh, North America to uh, the moon landing, it, it's it's all over the place and it's fascinating. So, Room Two Three Seven documentary, you can find it on Netflix streaming. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can definitely go out and check it as soon as this podcast is over. So that's it. That that's all we've got for this week. Um, so instead, next week um, I'm going to review the Night Shift. Um, Stephen King's first collection of short stories. And what I'm going to do, rather than reviewing each and every story, I'm just going to uh, review the, the the stories that really stand out and and uh, talk about why they're effective. Um, and then uh, and then after that, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to review any of the movies that are associated because there are quite a few movies associated with the stories in, uh, in Night Shift. So, um, between now and then, uh, Constant Reader, I look forward to hearing from you. Please reach out to me at uh, stephenkingcast at yahoo.com to, to give me any thoughts about the, the review of this movie, any thoughts that you have on the movie itself, and whether or not you feel the, the, the movie is stronger than the book, whether or not the book is stronger than the movie, if I was wrong in any way, if there's anything that you noticed that I didn't point out, or if there's anything that I said was wrong. Either way, just uh, reach out, because I, I can't have this conversation alone, nor do I want to. So, uh, until next week, uh, take care, keep the lights on, and I will see you next week. Same King time, same King channel. Stephen King cast. <laughs> <laughs>